Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Life After Midnight Strange History Salem Style. It has been a while, so as always, I am your host, Kristen Harris. I am very glad to be back with you all. Before I launch into the episode, I wanted to add an addendum to the beginning of this episode. It has been recorded for a while, uh, but as life gets on with itself, obviously I have had some things that have prevented me from putting this out until now. Uh, However, I would like to take a bit of a minute to thank a few people because I recently took part this weekend in the Daughters of Darkness Festival here in Salem. This is was headed this year by Die With Your Boots On, a store owned by Amber Newberry Izzo here in Salem, and Witch City Wicks. Uh, so I would like to thank both of those ladies uh, for involving me, for having the confidence in me to allow me to be a part of it. So for those of you who haven't been here before and don't know, uh, Salem Daughters of Darkness is a night market involving all women, business owners, entrepreneurs, artists, etc. And it was an absolute success this year. Uh, So congratulations to Amber and to everyone involved in Daughters of Darkness. Uh, All of the proceeds for that actually go to HAWC, H-A-W-C which stands for Healing Abuse Working for Change. And so Hawk is actually a domestic violence agency in Massachusetts that also has a branch here in Salem, and they help abused women, children, men, and non-binary people live free from violence and fear. So it's a domestic violence agency. So all of the donated admission fees from that actually go to Hawk. So it was actually for a good cause. And on Sunday, uh, Amber held a death cafe at Hyven Forge here in Salem, which is an awesome eclectic store featuring antiques and taxidermy and all sorts of local artists from all around Massachusetts. So if you are ever in Salem, definitely check out Hyven Forge. They are awesome. Um, So I'd like to thank them as well for hosting this as the venue for the Death Cafe. And I was very lucky to speak with some other ladies, uh, Rachel from Epic Preservation, who preserves all of our headstones here in Salem, Uh, Julie, who is an autopsy technician here in Massachusetts, Uh, Elizabeth Carteropoli, who is a funerary celebrant and an expert in gravestone art, Lori Moran, who works for the Cemeterarium here in Salem, Uh, which you may have heard of, and she makes jewelry and memorial pieces uh, modeled after mourning art and headstones and grave art. So it was a really wonderful experience. It was really wonderful to be a part of it. It's given me so much inspiration. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all of those ladies and uh, thank you all for just sharing your expertise and absolutely being awesome. So On the note of this episode, I would like to once again welcome you all back. It has been a while. And the last time I published an episode, it was on deadly fashions in the 19th century. Uh, While some of the other ones, let's say, were deadly fashions light, uh, this episode is going to deal with something that actually legitimately did cause cases of injury or death. Um, And it's something you may have heard of. And it is arsenic fabric and arsenic wallpaper. So to begin, I would like to welcome you to part two of episode five, She's Got Looks That Kill, and I will be dealing with arsenic fashion today. So without further ado, welcome to episode five, part two. 
An article written in Punch magazine in 1862 titled Poisoners and Polkas reads, It is said that a lady's hall dress, which, as many of them are, is colored green with arsenic, will in one rattling waltz or polka throw off enough poison to kill a dozen people. As the girl goes whirling round, the arsenic is whisked off her and in a cloud of powder floats about the room. Now, if ladies will persist in wearing arsenic dresses, a ball will be as deadly and destructive as a cannonball, and nearly everyone who dances will be food for arsenic powder. We are past the age ourselves for such gymnastic exercise, but we like to see young people actively enjoy themselves, and we believe there is nothing more heartily to enjoy when they are brought together than a gallop or a waltz. For sanitary reasons, too, we think a dance commendable. Sodorification is at times a healthy process, and not many modes of exercise promote it with more certainty and quickness than the dance. We, therefore, trust that poison dresses will soon go out of fashion, and that we may hear no more of ladies introducing the arsenic dance of death. Now, while it is important to remember that Punch Magazine is a medical satire journal, they would often publish on serious subjects, maybe with a little more chagrin than they should, and perhaps maybe with a bit of sarcasm, as we saw in episode one. In February 8th, 1862, they actually published a picture called the Arsenic Waltz to go with that lovely article we just heard. They are calling the dance of this arsenic waltz the new dance of death. Now, when most people hear arsenic, their immediate thought is ingestion. People poisoning loved ones to get away with accidental death. We think of murder most foul and dramas unfolding as a spouse or a child is found to be slowly murdering a rich relative for inheritance money. But whatever your fantasy, I'm sure your mind does not visit a household parlor brimming with the stuff as it sits on your glorious new wallpaper or women in a joyful dance in a new green satin dress, blissfully unaware of the danger their fashion choice has put them in. You surely don't think of little girls working on beautiful adornments for wreaths as sores develop on their faces, or orphan infants mysteriously dying under the care of nurses, whose only crime was choosing a fabric for a uniform. And in fact, we hear the story of one of those unfortunate young women in the book Fashion Victims, The Dangers of Dress, Past and Present, by author Allison Matthews David where she writes that on November 20th, 1861, Matilda Schurer, a 19-year-old artificial flower maker, died of accidental poisoning. The formerly healthy, good-looking young woman worked for a Mrs. Bergeron in central London, uh, along with a few hundred other employees. And David writes that she fluffed artificial leaves, dusting them with an attractive green powder that she inhaled and ate, then ate with her hands at every meal. The hue of the green pigment, which was also used to color dresses and hair ornaments, was achieved by mixing copper and a highly toxic arsenin trioxide, or white arsenic, as it was known. The press described her death in grisly detail, and by all accounts, her death was horrible. In fact, in a case file written on this by a man named Guy, they actually write about the death of Miss Schurer. And uh, another woman, actually, uh, here, 
And to the death of Matilda Schurer, having been caused by her occupation and that only, there's another account of a woman named Frances Rollo um, from a forewoman at the same place and from young women who had worked with her. And so the report reads as following. So these were the effects of this poisoning. Um, the woman that Guy is talking about was 17 years of age and had worked in the factory about a year and a half. He writes that she was quite well when she began. She worked with the emerald green day by day for six months. She fell ill and wasted away gradually. She had all the usual symptoms, and before she left work, a hole formed in the base of her left ring finger, a part on which the poison settles in dusting. She also had the same rash as others that had died from this. Her neck was very bad with sores and was covered with a complete crust. She was at work on Saturday and left work on Monday following when she took to her bed. Her symptoms were those of fever, for which Dr. Maurice Davis attended her. Before her fatal illness, her symptoms, as just stated, were those of the other girls, but more decided. She was pale, her complexion assumed a sort of dusky yellow tinge, and she grew very thin. She was not worse fed or less cleanly than the others. She was sent to London Fever Hospital, where she died on May 20th, 1861. So this is uh, uh, earlier in the year than Matilda Scherer. The body was examined, but no inquest was held. The gate reporter was reported to have said that the liver was found full of holes. From Dr. Maurice Davis, who is referred to in the foregoing account, I ascertained that Francis Rollo had been seen by him and found to be suffering from the symptoms of fever, which justified him in recommending her to be sent to the fever hospital. The account on Matilda Scherer was equally as grisly. It was said that she vomited green waters, the whites of her eyes had turned green, and she told her doctor that everything she looked at was green. In her final hours, she had convulsions every few minutes until she died, with an expression of great anxiety and foaming at the mouth, nose, and eyes. And an autopsy confirmed that her fingernails had turned a very pronounced green, and the arsenic had reached her stomach, liver, and lungs. As Punch wrote sarcastically in an article titled Pretty Poison Wreaths two weeks later, it was proved by medical testimony that she had been ill for the same case four times within the last 18 months. Under such circumstances as these, death is evidently about as accidental as it is when resulting from a railway collision occasioned by arrangements known to be faulty. As you can probably hear from these accounts, the uh, effects reported by London physician and professor of forensic medicine, William Gee, were alarming to many, many people. But you're hearing all of these things and probably thinking, how did we even get to this point? How are women, and then later on, as I'll talk about children, being poisoned by the very things they're wearing, by the very things that they as a consumer are trusting to buy? Well, to go back, we have to actually begin in 1778 with the discovery of a pigment that would come to be known as Scheele's Green, discovered by and named for Carl Scheele, who was a Swedish chemist. So it was known for being a vibrant green hue and became majorly popular, and it was used in a multitude of goods. And so there are early warnings against using Scheele's Green, actually, both in French and German newspapers, and there were people talking about taking action, but ended up not doing so in Great Britain. 
So Great Britain is really where we're seeing a majority of this for the most part, as most of the accounts I've just read are from London. And so there were early warnings against this. The first published account of poisoning by wallpaper uh, actually did cause a moral panic, and I'll get to that a little earlier on. But for now, i like to explore a bit about where this arsenic came from and some of the earlier reports about this, because it is absolutely baffling to me that a lot of these were ignored in Great Britain. And we can see a lot of these earlier accounts in an article written in the Journal of the Royal Medical Society by Jessica Charlotte Haslam. Uh, called Deadly Decor, A Short History of Arsenic Poisoning in the 19th Century. So a lot of these first reports, because a lot of these products started being used during the 1800s, and that's when it became extremely popular, one of the first safety warnings actually comes as far back as 1839 from ar about arsenic wallpaper from a man named Leopold Gamelin, a famous German chemist, who noted that damp rooms with green wallpaper often possessed a mouse-like odor, which he attributed to the production of dimethyl arsenic acid within the wallpaper. So he reported his concerns in Karlsruhe Zeitung, a German daily paper of the time, warning the population against applying papers containing Shields green pigments to the walls of their homes. This is therefore an early account of using the media to raise public awareness of potential harm and address this as a public health issue. And so uh, Jessica actually writes in this article that after this report came, the first major case of poisoning to hit the news headlines in the UK uh, described the deaths of four children in London's working class Limehouse district, one after the other, all suffering from sore throats and respiratory troubles. And at the time of death, the children were diagnosed with diphtheria. However, a physician in charge of the cases uh, actually started looking into this because there were no uh, causatives of diphtheria in the region, nor had any other children died of this. And it was not until a man named Henry Lethaby, a public health officer, discovered that the children's bedroom had recently been papered with green wallpaper, that the true cause of death was actually discovered. And his examination of that paper found that it contained three grains per square foot of arsenic, which is a lethal dose. And so this is this is one of the first accounts and sort of investigations by a health officer. But what starts to happen throughout the 19th century is that there it's mostly circumstantial evidence from newspapers and medical articles. So you don't really start to see uh, a public outcry yet. But more and more cases start to pile up. Uh, and in 1857, a Birmingham physician named William Hines reported from suffering an overwhelming urge to vomit, abdominal cramps, lightheadedness, um, which only eased itself upon him retiring to bed. Uh, and then symptoms would begin again the following evening. And so he continued to be pained uh, that and realized that his, his symptoms overlapped with exactly the time that he retired to his green papered study each night. And so this man scraped off samples of his wallpapers and found that they contained arsenic. Then in 1856, a couple reported uh, a curious case to someone as well. Uh, the, the, a businessman and his wife were both suffering from a weakness, sore throat, inflamed eyes, and headaches to such a degree that they were driven to seek refuge by sea. Uh, even apparently their pet parrot appeared to be unwell, according to Jessica, uh, refusing to eat and drinking incessantly. 
So their symptoms dissipated when they left, but recurred almost immediately on their homecoming. Suspecting that their green wallpapers were actually to blame, they had them all removed and they were back to full health. So this is where the public health scandal starts to come into play. Uh, More and more physicians start realizing that this arsenic wallpaper is actually affecting people and a movement starts to ban the use of copper arsenite in the manufacture of home goods. Uh, The campaign was even supported by The Lancet after its founder, Thomas Walkie, was reported to have narrowly escaped death uh, by the green decor of the office's walls. So... Where is all this wallpaper coming from in the 19th century? Uh, Well, it actually comes from a place called Morris & Company. And so this is a a design company started by William Morris, who was a designer. It is actually still in business. And William Morris is regarded by some as the greatest designer and one of the most outstanding figures in the arts and crafts movement. So William Morris saying that, As to the arsenic scare, a greater folly is hardly possible to imagine. The doctors were bitten as people were bitten by witch fever. So he actually starts to dissuade people from thinking that his wallpaper is actually causing arsenic poisoning. And apparently William Morris was also a poet. He was a poet, artist, philosopher, typographer, and political theorist, and is also apparently a Puritan. So... He did not start his business until 1861, but, and as I said before, in the 1850s, this is kind of where this starts to come about, so when he starts his business, obviously it makes sense that he would try and dissuade people from thinking that the arsenic was actually harmful um, so that he could get his hues. So he started his business in 1861 with a group of friends as a decorating business, Um, and it was Morris, Marshall, Faulkner, and Company providing beautiful handcrafted products and furnishing for the home. And their tagline was affordable art for all. They were best known for their wallpaper and fabric designs. And over the next 150 years, the company came to be known simply as Morrison Company. And they enjoyed long periods of growth, but also suffered mixed fortunes, probably because of the arsenic. I'm betting it's the arsenic, Uh, particularly during the years of the First and Second World Wars. They eventually did go into voluntary liquidation, uh, but the design archives and remaining wallpaper stock were purchased by another household name in home furnishings, Arthur Sanderson and Sons, and they now both sit under um, the official home of Morrison Company. So they all sort of sit together, and this other company is actually still selling those wallpapers today. Not the arsenic wallpapers, but they are still selling Morris Designs. So arsenic was actually found in several of Morris's early designs produced between 1864 and 1875, as well as the green dye used in his trellis pattern paper, which was his first commercially sold range. The motives behind his disbelief of that public concern have been questioned, but I think it's pretty obvious why Mr. Morris would actually choose to dissuade some of these earlier sort of outcries against arsenic. So, you know, as we get on and on in history and you're wondering, well, why are people still buying these products and still wearing these things and buying these wreaths? Well, it's because you had the major people in life sort of going against this public outcry, William Morris included. So I'm thinking that maybe some of this had to do with what some of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning 
actually are. So the early onset picture, sort of chronic arsenic intoxication, included loss of appetite, nausea, periodic vomiting, and weakness. Then the mucous membranes of the eyes, nose, and throat were affected. And so it is listed as irritation and smarting of the eyes and nostrils is often the most marked symptom, the irritation sometimes lasting for months. Um, You can also feel dizzy, lightheaded, out of sorts, things of that nature. Uh, And then (laughs) this is also frequently accompanied by ulceration of the mouth and tongue, a sore throat, a persistent dry cough, and hoarse voice. So you will eventually start to develop mouth sores. Uh, And then you will develop skin eruptions that can usually appear uh, with patches of brown pigmentation on the eyelids, the neck, the armpits, and in advanced cases, just about any area of the skin. So when you get into these severe sort of symptoms, uh, you can have hacking coughs. It gets worse and worse. And then we talk about those sores that were developed like in William Gee's report earlier. And moreover, the symptoms of the severe condition were actually symptoms that were similar to conditions of the day, particularly cholera and pulmonary tuberculosis. So this is not something that someone suffers lightly. This is actually a horrible, horrible way to go and will eventually result in you expiring. To make matters worse, a Victorian medical practice of the time and medical management often involved confining the patient or quarantining them away from everyone else and sort of trying to wait out this sickness. So eventually sufferers were locked in with the poison until they finally expired, depending on where this wallpaper is in your house. Also, not everyone in arsenic-ridden households appeared to be susceptible, so only some individuals would get these symptoms. So this backlash is also coupled with the fact that to the eyes of many people viewing this this um, sickness and this illness, it would seem that because everyone in the household wasn't affected, this wallpaper actually wasn't to blame. So this continues and continues, this debate on how harmful this actually is and how people should go about dealing with it. So in my mind, this sort of becomes... Um, a consumer issue as well, because why are these people who are selling these products actually going to tell people to stop using them, especially in a period of, you know, commerce growth and commercial growth and things of that nature. So this is an era of consumerism. So obviously, if we can't prove that these people are definitely dying from arsenic poisoning as a result of this wallpaper and as a result of the levels of arsenic in this wallpaper, why are we going to deter them from buying it? And while there were some people that were adhering to this, that this arsenic poisoning was from the inhalation of arsenic particles brushing off of wallpaper, let's go back to that account I talked about published in The Lancet that described how the playroom of a three-year-old boy was actually found to, who was found to have died of arsenic poisoning. This playroom apparently was layered with the very same dust that people were talking about that was often seen on these wallpapers. But in 1859... Alfred Hassall, who is one of the only medical scientists to actually disbelieve the poisoning theories, wrote that essentially the arsenic dyes were too tightly adhered to the papers to make this theory credible. In later years, it was suggested that the papers were producing arsenic gases, but this concept was rejected as the pigments were found to be non-volatile as room temperature. So you actually even get to the point where despite all of these accounts, you have a medical professional 
disbelieving that these people are being poisoned by arsenic. I really would like to know if there was a company that paid this guy off to essentially say, no, it's not the wallpaper. It's just these particles and they're too tight. It's just a coincidence that this dust is the same color. Um, because people still buy these products. Even after 1859, we still have people buying these products. <laughs> And so at this point, I've thrown a lot of information at you all. So we're going to backtrack a little bit to when people actually started to investigate this. And Guy's report that I talked about, William Guy, was actually published um, in 1862. The investigation was called for to be published in 1863. Now, this these different media outcries grew so much that it actually did cause the Privy Council in London to investigate this. So essentially, uh, they passed the matter on to the Privy Council, who in turn requested that their own medical officer of health investigate. Guy was the person actually assigned to that case. And when his report comes out, he writes about some more of these serious effects. Um, and he starts to examine the workers uh, like Schurer and like Rollo, who seemingly are dying as a result of the effects of these dust used on wreaths and used in artificial flower shops. Uh, now, wreaths, artificial flowers, things of this nature, things on hats are extremely popular in the 19th century, especially in the 1860s. So... This is a particular part of fashion that is very, very widely spread. And so that's what makes his report all the more sort of tragic is that he writes that most of the workers were young. Half of them were 20 and under. And many complained of symptoms that could all have been related to arsenic poisoning. Uh, nearly all experienced the onset of what felt like a common cold, as I said before, developing a headache, runny eyes, nose, and sneezing. Other symptoms weren't universal, but occurred in some combination in most of them. So constipation, diarrhea, green nasal mucus, green vomit, green urine, pimple-like eruptions breaking out on the face and sometimes covering other areas of the body, growing in size until they resembled smallpox and leaving scars when they abated, sloughing off patches of skin, formation of ulcers in the denuded areas, sores on the fingers, shedding of hair, darkening of the complexion to dusky or olive, disruption of menstruation, ulceration of the general, genital organs, uh, leaving them so tender that in several cases the lower part of the body had been so severely affected that the young women were unable to sit down. Workers thus afflicted were reassigned to sweeping the floor, which didn't require sitting. Flower makers were not infrequently made invalid for weeks at a time, he learned. Uh, but he was able to substantiate only one case of death from the employment, which was Matilda Schurer. And so he stated in his summation of the 1863 report to the Privy Council, I should have thought it right to suggest the absolute prohibition of such branches of manufacture. And so hearing all of these reports, this is this sort of amazing moment where we see this media circumstantial evidence starting to cause a shift in societal opinion that was enough for the public to start taking action. And so this is what's really amazing to me is we start to see, because this is affecting young girls that are workers, we actually start to see people taking action in a labor movement at the time. So usually, obviously, labor movements of the time were 
affecting at this time children's work, uh, long hours, things like that. Um, but this is the first time we're seeing an actual, you know, medical thing involved with fashion and involved with media and public outcry actually resulting in uh, the forming of organizations. And so there were definite philanthropic organizations that start taking up the cause of this woman who had who had died. And so they start forming the Ladies Sanitary Association which was actually founded a few years before we start seeing the arsenic issue really presented and really picking up speed as far as public outcry, um, which starts to happen a few years later in London. But the association was founded in 1857 for the dual purpose of educating women on how to protect their family's health and inspiring them to work for the remediation of social and economic conditions that generated illness. So, this is really amazing because it's, it's a sort of Victorian issue of morality, which usually put women in the domestic sphere, sphere and said that they were supposed to be moral. So this is a moment where you see women taking up a moral cause uh, on behalf of women workers outside the home. So it's this really wonderful moment where we can see, you know, all of these arsenic fashions actually being taken up as the cause of women for women uh, because of these workers being affected. And so for the most part, uh, female flower makers were sort of in the purview of the Ladies Sanitary Association. After Matilda Schurer's death, Two of the members of the association submitted a letter to the Times in which they informed the public that the unfortunate girl was just an extreme illustration of the misery endured by hundreds. Surely, now that women were being made aware of this situation, they would abandon the green adornments for some more becoming color. So uh, there's a lovely book about arsenic poisoning, and I love this author's quote, uh, where she says, Who needed parliamentary intervention when the weapon of sisterly love was at hand? Love it. <laughs> and so as we see these women take up the cause, uh, one of the members of this association, a woman named Nicholson, uh, last name Nicholson, actually visited some of these flower shops and workshops, and she published a shocking firsthand account where she refers to them as half-clad, half-starved, girls with bandaged hands and some cutaneous disease. And she wrote that one of the girls refused to work anymore and that she had observed her fellow flower makers in the workshop wearing handkerchiefs soaked with blood. And she herself had been kept on working with green until her face was a mass of sores and she was almost blind. Nicholson's article alerted her readers to the fact that young female workers were ignorant of the nature and effects of arsenical greens and imagine that it gives them a dreadful cold. So a lot of these women that are working with this aren't actually really aware of the horrific effects that this has and that will eventually result in death. And so the Ladies Sanitary Commission, after Matilda Schurer's death, commissioned Dr. A.W. Hoffman, who is an analytical chemist, to test artificial leaves from a lady's headdress. And he shared his results with the public in a London Times article titled The Dance of Death, which is modeled probably Punch's article and political cartoon is most likely a satire of this article that was actually uh, published by A.W. Hoffman. And he concluded that the average headdress contained enough arsenic to poison 20 people. The green tartalins so much of late in vogue for, for ball dresses. So 
This is saying that they basically contained as much as half their weight in arsenic, meaning that a ball gown fashioned from 20 yards of the fabric that was dyed with Shields Green would have 900 grains of arsenic. A Berlin doctor also determined that from a dress of this kind, no less than 60 grains powdered off in the course of a single evening. A grain is actually based on the weight of a wheat grain is equivalent to 64.8 milligrams or one seven thousandth of a pound. So four or five grains are lethal for the average adult. (laughs) So again, these reports are coming out and coming out and coming out and people are still buying these ball gowns. So it's no wonder that Punch got a little bit punchy with uh, publishing their rebuke of ball gowns essentially saying that, you know, these consumers are not aware of these effects, even though we keep publishing them. So hopefully soon people will take action. And the Ladies Sanitary Association absolutely did. But as we could said before, the consumer train never stops. So people do absolutely start paying attention to these things. However, uh, they're still using arsenic in different products. So in Britain, the Control of Poisons Bill in 1851 and the Arsenic Act of 1868 were actually passed to limit the amounts that could be sold to individuals. However, it was completely still legal and unregulated for large-scale use in the industry. So there were regulations against its sale for individual use, but this still did nothing for mass production. So this is absolutely, even after all of the efforts of the Ladies Sanitary Association and all of these reports that are published in the media and all of this public outcry, these products are still being sold. And so even though France and Germany actually start taking uh, sort of steps against this, Great Britain is still behind. And As late as 1871, there was a woman who purchased a box of green-colored gloves at a well-known and respectable house, as the quote goes, suffered from repeated skin ulcerations around her fingernails until arsenical salts were detected. So it's not really surprising that, um, you know, people are still actually using this. And throughout the 1870s, there are many, many cases of families following newspaper campaigns and actually carrying out home tests. So people would actually burn strips of their wallpaper to see if a garlic odor was produced or drop diluted hydrochloric acid onto the paper looking for a blue color change, which were said to be positive tests for arsenic. So... You know, we're still seeing people using these products and people coming in with these different symptoms in regard to arsenic. So just to clarify, too, this does eventually reach people. One of the later individuals to become aware of the poisoning was actually Queen Victoria herself. So she wasn't personally affected, but a report from 1879 describes how a visiting dignitary who was late for presentation, had enraged Queen Victoria. He was late for his presentation. And when he finally uh, got into her company, he apologized, explaining that he had fallen ill overnight and suspected that it was an effect of green wallpaper uh, lining the guest bedchamber. 
So apparently the queen ordered that all such paper be stripped from the walls of Buckingham Palace. And news of this incident leaked into the media and many of her loyal subjects followed suit. So, you know, you have the efforts of the Ladies' Sanitary Association and now you have the queen herself demanding that all of this wallpaper be taken out of Buckingham Palace for people to actually start following along. So as we know, consumer-led boycotts often are slow-moving. It is said that the first sort of successful organized consumer boycott was in the 1790s in London with the anti-saccharin society that was actually boycotting sugar. I mean, I'm someone who works in 1773 every day, so I would beg to differ, although we were not very successful at a lot of our boycotts in the colonies. There were definitely some organized boycotts, um, maybe not on such a large scale, um, but apparently that is the first one. So consumer boycotts have worked before. And, you know, despite, you know, all of the uncertainties with everything and the mistrust of green wallpapers, you know, obviously these things are still actually eking out into society even still. And so as early as the 1880s then, the National Health Society, which was an organization formed to educate the public on health-related matters, put together a committee who drew up a bill calling for the ban of arsenic in household goods. So now this is not just selling to individuals. This is actually people trying to put a bill to parliament to ban arsenic in household goods because of all of these accounts that people are hearing. And so the physician that they submitted it to rejected their bill, and parliament considered the matter no further in the 1880s. It was actually not until 1891 that we see the notion of arsenic gas production re-explored by an Italian physician named Bartolomeo Gassio. And so he did this potato mash experiment, essentially, that went on to show that arsenic could be volatized from the pigmented paper by fungi living in the wallpaper so that this could actually come out. So we're seeing all of these things and all of these things and all of these things, yet Great Britain actually never really passed any parliamentary procedure during this time period. Uh, And in fact, no legislation was ever passed regarding the manufacture of arsenic wallpapers. So we see this historical moment where there is a moral panic happening among the people over these sorts of things. And society's opinion is formed from all of these reports in newspapers and word of mouth accounts. So it was sufficient enough for the public to force a shift in home goods manufacturing to actually start to shift away from the use of arsenic. So obviously arsenic is not actually used in anything anymore, but This was a moment where this consumer sort of outrage actually forced companies to start reevaluating their use of arsenic um, through a public outcry. There actually were reports published, too, uh, in America about this. It was at the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, May 1898 to May 1891. So people were still doing studies of these things, and we start to see this declining Thank you all for joining me on this journey. If you have any questions or you would like to have any source material, I am always ready to respond to that. And I would love to hear any questions you have. But thank you all once again for joining me. It is good to be back. So as always, everyone, stay spooky. And if you have any questions, you can find me on my website, lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. All of these episodes are on iTunes and published on the website. And as always, have a strange life.